0: Hey, welcome to episode number 185 of More Than Bread. We're in chapter five of Paul's letter from prison to his friends in Ephesus, and it is a glorious look at the church, and also at marriage, but for this episode, a glorious look at the church. So we're just gonna dive in. I'm not gonna do the intro stuff. I'm gonna ask you to just take a moment and imagine with me, Months of anticipation, weeks of planning have come to an end. The gifts have been bought, families arrive, morning rises. There's a growing sense of nervous anticipation. I'm not talking about Christmas morning, though there are many similarities. I'm talking about a wedding. I've done more than one or two of those in my lifetime. If if you're married, think back to your wedding day. Those of you who aren't married, think back to one that you've attended Every wedding I've done has, has been unique, unique setting, unique stories, unique friends. Some have candles and flowers and sit-down dinners. Others are outdoors with barbecues and pine and grass. But but here here's what most every wedding has in common. Everything fades when the bride enters. Everyone's attention is on the bride. People stand, heads twist sideways with... Every row she passes, that, that's the way it is with a bride. She remains hidden until the plane of the four-measure fanfare of the wedding march. But when she enters, she's center stage. Row by row, people turn to face the center aisle. Some hold their breath without even knowing it. They cry, they smile. It's a, it's a divine moment. And, and here's another thing that they have in common. I'm telling you, every single wedding I've been in, the groom's attention is nowhere except on the face of Of his bride. (laughs) Listen to Paul paint the picture in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 32. Here's what he says And you husbands must love your wives with the same love that Christ showed the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by baptism in God's word. He, He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, for a man is actually loving himself when he loves his wife. No one hates his own body, but lovingly cares for it, just as Christ cares for his body, which is the church. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. And here in the midst of pragmatic instruction on what it means to be a servant in your marriage, we, we run into this revelation of a truth more precious than diamonds, one of the most profound things ever written about the church. Paul leans way back into the origins of our faith, the book of Genesis, and he draws out God's picture of marriage, and he applies it to the relationship between chi- ch- between Jesus and the church. And what does he say? The church is the bride. The church is the focus of attention. The church is the passion on the heart of Jesus. Like like a bride taking her walk down the aisle, he cannot keep his eyes off her face. He cannot stop dreaming about their life together. He cannot help the fire that rises in his heart when he stands to defend her from the comments of people who cannot see the beauty within her that he sees. Have you been a part of Calvary in this last year? You've heard these stats. I've said them more than once. In the book, The Great Dechurching, for example, they report that about 40 million people quit going to church over the last 25 years. Greatest dechurching of America ever. More people have left the church in the last quarter century than were added during the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham crusades combined. In the last three years, we were so easily divided. Politics became more important than kingdom. And every time I look around, There's another church crisis or scandal or fallen pastor. And and, and yet another research group called the Pine Tops Foundation suggests if something doesn't change that in the next 30 years we'll see the largest, even greater than the last 25, the largest and fastest numerical shift in religious connection in the history of our country. Conservatively, they report that a million kids A million people of the next generation who have some connection to the church in their youth will leave the church every year. A million a year who had been connected will leave the church. A million a year, 35 million kids raised in families that call themselves Christians will leave by 2050. We've been discipled more by consumerism and social media than the gospel and scripture. In the last three years, 40% of the pastors in America have considered quitting. Every successive generation is more skeptical of the church, and a great percentage feel that the church brings harm to a community rather than blessing. I remember a Barna survey from a a number of years ago among a nationwide representative sampling of people who did not consider themselves Christians. The image of evangelical Christians ranked number 10 of 11 groups. The only group viewed more negatively was prostitutes. And yet Jesus gave his life. So that his church would turn heads, would turn the world upside down, would be the center of attention, drawing the eyes of all those around to see faith and hope and love in a world filled with cynicism, despair, and apathy. That's what was taking place in the church described in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. It says, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church about 3,000 in all. This is the first crusade. This is the first church service. They joined with other believers and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, sharing in the Lord's Supper and in prayer, and a deep sense of awe came over them all, Luke says. And and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together constantly, and they shared everything they had. They sold their possessions, and they shared the proceeds with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple every day, met in homes and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And it was a church filled with power and growth and influence, compassion and love. It was a church filled with Jesus. Later in Acts chapter 5, they they were brought before the Jewish religious political leaders on charges of, you know what? They said, look at what you've done. You have filled Jerusalem with your faith. Then in Thessalonica, they were called the ones who turned the world upside down. What made the difference? After Jesus rose rose from the dead, he commissioned his followers to be world changers. And In essence, he had given them all the information, all the teaching they needed to begin. But he said, there's one more thing you need to wait. Wait for the promise. Wait until you are totally immersed in the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll receive power. And I'll tell you, as the church gets full of the Holy Spirit, she becomes so transformed that she becomes a center of attention in a world that is hungry for faith, hope, and love, and God, I mean, think about that for a minute with me. What is the center of attention in your community? Who who turns heads in your workplace? So the sites that you hit on social media, who are the influencers? What, what organization do people in your neighborhood believe has the greatest potential to turn the world upside down, to positively impact and influence the world? Where, where does everybody keep looking for answers? The number one answer is probably not the church. <laughs> And yet, with all my heart, I believe that the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus' dreams, is the hope for our future. The the church alive in the book of Acts and the book of Ephesians is not a one-time occurrence. It's still God's plan to transform cities and turn the world upside down. There's no other organization in the world that has the same potential as the church to give birth to life-giving communities, to eradicate poverty by radically serving the poor, to be a healing bridge across racial divides to stabilize the economy, by permeating the culture with integrity and a godly perspective on money and, and generosity, to bring life by introducing people to Jesus. And the reason I believe all of this is because I believe with all my heart that the church has captured the passion of Christ. Jesus' passion is for his bride. The most important thing going on in the world today is the church. The church, not, not the building, not the place that you go on Sunday morning. The church is not a building. The church is not an organization. The church is not Calvary. The church is God's people living together in a life-giving community on mission to change the world by being Jesus to the people around us. The church it, it are those people who love God with all their heart and love their neighbors like they love themselves. And the center of attention in heaven at this moment is the church. With all its faults and impotence, it has captured the passion of Jesus. I mean, listen to Paul again. He says, and you husbands must love your wives with the same love that Christ showed the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by baptism in God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. In other words, Jesus is not finished. Paul's words give us the assurance that no matter how good the past might have been or how difficult the present can seem, it's the future that holds the promises of God. The reality is, I know it, this season has been difficult economically, relationally, for many of us, even spiritually. The reality is that our church, my church, Calvary, is not yet that glorious church without spot or wrinkle or blemish. The reality is that we make mistakes. The reality is that we sometimes hurt each other, hurt others, and and no matter how hard we try, sometimes it just seems like we can't make it right. The reality is that sometimes too often we aren't as passionate as we could be about the passions that are on the heart of God. But that's, that's only part of the reality, maybe even just a small part. The greater reality is that Jesus is not through with us yet. The greater reality is that Jesus loves the hundreds of thousands of people who, who, who live in the, the center region and in your city, in your community, your neighborhood, wherever you're listening to this, he, he loves the people so much that he will not give up on his church. The greater reality is that Jesus has a dream and the passion and the power to see that dream come true. You know, in the last couple of years, Jesus keeps leading me back to a simple phrase that I think captures the heart of his vision for us in in the years to come. It's a simple phrase, build a church without walls. A church without walls is a church with free access to God. A church without walls is a a church that loves its neighbors as much as it loves being together. A church without walls is a church that is so valuable to the community that even atheists would say, you know, if those people were gone, our our community would, would not be as good. We would greatly miss them. A church without walls is a church that prioritizes scattering to love our neighbors over gathering in a building, a church that prioritizes people over politics. And and is there any hope that we'll ever be that church? Uh, Listen, don't don't leave these words of Paul's in Ephesians 5 without the realization that Jesus is for us. Christ loved the church like like a a groom loves his bride, (laughs) He gave himself for it. He didn't talk about rights or what he deserved. He didn't say, why should I suffer? He didn't consider the cost or the shame. He he knew what was involved, but with passion, he gave everything for us. And he still does because he loves us. In fact, he even likes us. He likes just hanging out with us. In spite of our failures, even when we are unlikable, he decided that he would rather die for us than live without us. Jesus is passionately for you. He's passionately for us, the church, his bride. And and if that's true, we we have to ask the question. It begs the question, so what's missing? Why is there such a difference between who we are and who we could be? And I think according to Paul, what's missing is the filling of the Spirit in our lives and in our church. What does Paul say in verse 18 of Ephesians 5? He says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. Now, isn't that kind of odd that when it comes to being full of God, Paul would choose to contrast being full of God with being full of alcohol? Isn't that odd? Not really. I mean, think about it. Why do people get drunk? Let's go party, have fun, lowers the barriers to relationships, helps me forget my problems. Getting drunk is an issue of fullness. For some people, it's a life path with its own religious traditions. 21 shots on your 21st birthday, bar crawls. (laughs) See, we get drunk to get full or we get drunk to forget that we're empty. You, You may not realize this, but Jesus is passionate about the pleasures of life. In fact, one time he stated his life purpose as making sure that you live life full of joy. I mean, you know why thousands, maybe tens of thousands people in, in our community at Penn State get drunk every weekend? Because they haven't found the path that leads to more pleasure. They haven't found the path that leads to more pleasure, more life than the one that they're on. There's a better way to get full. Getting full of God, full of the Holy Spirit leads to a life that is not enslaved but free. I mean, it's not just alcohol. It's addiction. It's the things we seek to fill our lives with that can never fill our hearts, and and it's the consequences of our actions under the influence. Uh, Unlike alcohol, the, the Spirit doesn't enslave. He brings freedom. The Spirit doesn't bring death. He brings life. And and, and not only are we not enslaved but free, we're not exhausted, we're exhilarated. Alcohol is a depressant. It lowers our level of awareness. After two or three drinks, the, the drinker often feels more tired and grouchy. That's why alcohol is often a factor in fights. A pint of whiskey supplies half the calories you need for a day, but no nu- nutritional value whatsoever. That's why when you wake up in the morning after, you're, you're not rested, you're wasted. Unlike alcohol, the spirit is not exhausting but exhilarating. In the spirit, we find power for our own lives. The Holy Spirit is a stimulant. Being filled with God does not lead to boredom. That's why Paul says, Do you want excitement? You, you want adventure stimulation? Be filled with the spirit. Spirit is not, being filled with the spirit is not depressed, but it, it's hopeful. I mean, being filled with the presence of God increases the size of our. Our hopes, it increases vital optimism and faithful anticipation, hopeful expectancy. When we're filled with God, no matter what our circumstances appear to be, we're never more than a moment away from a potential miracle. See, there is a way of living a life path you can walk with, which leads to becoming so full of God that rivers of living water flow out of you into the lives of people around you. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, Paul says, let the Holy Spirit fill you and control you. Then you're going to sing psalms and hymns. You're going to worship. You're going to make music to the Lord in your hearts, and you give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. David Anderson was rector of Trinity Church in Solbury, Pennsylvania. His book, Breakfast Epiphanies, opens with this story. He said, several years ago, I ran into a friend at a dinner party. When I asked him how he's doing, he told me he'd had a tough day. He said, 'My, my car stalled on 995 just outside of town. I had to wait an hour for a tow truck. Suddenly a scene flashed in Anderson's eye. Oh, he said that was you in the blue car. I was out there today and I drove right past you. I I didn't I didn't really look. I just saw a car and someone standing there. If I'd known it was you, I would have stopped. Sometimes that's a pretty good description of our search for God. If I'd known it was you, I would have stopped. You know what I think? I think the church keeps missing Jesus because we aren't filled with his spirit. And we aren't filled with his spirit because we're not willing to stop. We haven't surrendered. We we aren't willing to submit to God or each other. And when we submit to others, we actually open up space in our hearts for God. When we surrender to God, we're declaring that we are for him. And Paul's question is, are we for him? It's like saying I do. I remember my wedding day. I wasn't nervous at all. I was... I was riding a cross-country motorcycle and jumping from a 30-foot bridge into a river. I got dressed, and I wasn't nervous. I went to the church, and I wasn't nervous. I started, stood out on the platform, and, and I watched Lynn come down the aisle, and I was not nervous. We sang a duet, and I wasn't nervous. <laughs> and then the pastor said, do you, Dan, take? And it hit me, oh, my goodness. This is probably one of the most important decisions I'll ever make in my life. With God's help, I'm committing everything I am to this woman standing beside me. (laughs) Well, what if I would have said, well, Lynn, it's like you can have me on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but I need to be with someone else on Tuesday and Thursday. And then Sundays, they just belong to me. (laughs) Or how about sweets? Death do us part. That seems kind of long. And I'd kind of need to wait on that whole sickness and sorrow thing. But you know, for right now, for this moment, I'm good to go. What if I would have said, well, of course I take you as my wife, but I haven't decided yet if I'm going to give myself to you as your husband. The bottom line is that without saying I do, I would have missed out on all the incredible moments that life with Lynn has given me. Have you said I do to Jesus? Jesus, I I pray that We would be a people who say, I do to you every day. I do. I'm committed to you. I give you my heart. I submit to you. I surrender to you. Whatever you ask me to do, that's what I want to do. Whoever you want me to be, that's who I want to be. I surrender to you, Jesus. We surrender to you, Jesus. I pray that you would give people listening to this a, a, a newfound hope and expectancy for your church, your bride. I pray that we would see your bride as you see your bride. Not just all the the failures that we have and are, but, but the hope of who we will become. God, would you fill us with your spirit? Jesus, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us the power of your spirit so that your church can draw people to you? We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.